said enough. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, I'm going to add one more little uh, spur-of-the-moment shotgun uh, announcement, and that is that Lily, who runs our children's classes back there, she and I have been chatting about um, doing all that she does for kids' class. She's actually in the middle of teaching, uh, doing her student teaching right now, so her life is kind of crazy. Um, but she also had a few people step out of roles that they had been just kind of coming in and helping out in the kids' classes. So if that is something that you feel like you could do once a month for the next, let's say, three months, kind of to get us through the end of the spring, that would be amazingly helpful. Literally, all you have to do is be willing to show up and be nice to children. If you can do that, we would absolutely love to have you. You could talk to me or you could talk to Lily. We'll have a little background form you fill out. That would be wonderful. Um, thanks to everyone, by the way, who already is doing that and who teaches. You guys are unbelievable. Um, so as Jay said, my name is Joel. I'm a pastor here on staff. And today we're going to continue in a series on Mark. So if you brought a Bible, you uh, can open it up to Mark chapter 3. Um, now, I know everybody loves Tim's sermon titles. We all enjoy them. But you know who loves them the most? Tim. Uh, so I've sort of decided that now, from now on, whenever I speak, I'm going to try to make Tim's day by giving a Tim-worthy uh, sermon title. Are you ready, Tim? Okay. Um, Patrick, will you put that up there for us? Lightbenders, Beef Chicken, and the Lord of the Flies. And this is where I, <laughs> and this is where I say, don't worry, it'll all make sense, right? Okay. <clears throat> so, shall we begin? <laughs> okay, Mark uh, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13, uh, and here we go. He went up on the mountain, that's Jesus, and he called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve. Here's the list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, or whatever, that is the sons of thunder, uh, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for the people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons." And he called to them, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. And then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And we say, Amen? All right. What the heck does all that have to do with each other? I would like to jump in 
by starting about the titles we take for ourselves, the titles we take. Um, I uh, went ahead and did a little search to find out some interesting job titles. I thought we'd play a little game this morning and just kind of wake up your mind, see if you can guess what these job titles actually refer to, what job is actually being done. Ready? All right, let's do the first one, Patrick. Beverage dissemination officer. That is a bartender. Very good. Next one. We're just going to go pretty quick through these. Chick sexer. Anyone? <laughs> go ahead, Patrick. This is bartender. No, not bartender. Someone who... (laughs) I should have switched that order. Someone who determines the sex of chickens. That is who that is. Okay, number three, digital overlord. That is your website manager. Absolutely. Next, wizard of light bulb moments. Anybody? Marketing director. (laughs) All right, number five, problem wrangler. Who's, who's the problem wrangler, wrangler in our society? It is the counselors. Light bender, here you go. This is where it all makes sense. Who knows who a light, what a light bender does? Go ahead, Patrick. Someone who makes neon lights. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Seven, associate to the executive manager of marketeering and conservation efforts, also known as marketing assistant. And last one, the animal colorist. Any guesses? This is the person who dyes animals from movies and commercials. Uh, You might agree with me that some of those titles sound a little more fantastic than the actual jobs they do. Um, But I'd like to talk about titles for a little bit because they're intended to tell a function, right? So let's talk about that for a second. The titles can tell us our function. In verse 14, Jesus calls some people and he calls them apostles. He calls the 12 of them. And in the text, if you, if you didn't notice, the word apostle is actually um, lowercase. That's because it's being translated from a Greek word, which it was originally written in. We didn't have a word for apostles in English that was apostles. It was The Greek word is apostolos, and it just means the ones who are sent out. And actually, it means a little bit stronger than that. It means people who are like emissaries or proxies or agents uh, empowered to represent someone. So they are sent out. And in fact, before it was translated in English, it was translated into Latin. And in Latin, the word they used is missio, which is where we get our language, our word for missionary. So it might be better to think about the apostles as missionaries. Why would Jesus call apostles, call a group of people and say, these are going to be my people, my missionaries, my emissaries, my ambassadors? Well, it's because he had a mission. And the purpose of the title was that the apostles, these people, would know what their purpose is and so that the people they interacted with would also know their purpose. These are representatives of Jesus. And what does it say? They were appointed to be with him and to be sent out to cast out demons. It's a pretty awesome function, and it's a great title. That is a good use of a title. Secondly, though, let's talk about what else titles do. Titles can connect us. The second time we uh, run into a title in this section is actually kind of a different title. It's the family title. How does Jesus' family respond to Jesus, it says? People were saying he's out of his mind, and so his family comes out to restrain him. Why? Because he's embarrassing them. Because they feel because of their family connection, that title that connects them to him, his actions are reflecting on them. And later, they try to use that connection to leverage Jesus, right? Jesus, your mother and your brothers and sisters outside, you kind of feel like this, uh, this leverage that's being used to get him to stop doing what he's doing. And so he asks the, the great question, who is my mother, who is my brother, and who are my sisters? And he points to something bigger, a more important title, 
the family of God. In fact, Jesus does that several times. He actually confronts familial loyalty with kingdom of God loyalty, trying to get people to open up, trying to get outside of some, some of these smaller titles. But thirdly, I want to talk about a dangerous aspect of titles. Titles can entitle us. And this is where we bump into our third title in the section, which is the scribes. Uh, let me talk about the scribes for a second. The scribe is actually a professional title, much like the job titles we heard earlier. It was a title um, <clears throat> that came from a long tradition of people starting with Ezra. So if you look at the book of Ezra, Ezra was called Ezra the scribe, and he was the first. And it was this group of people who went to school to do multiple things. They went to learn to study the law, uh, the, the Jewish law. They went to uh, learn to copy it, so no printing presses, right? So they just had to write everything by hand. So they copied it, meaning they had probably written what we know as our entire Old Testament. That's pretty impressive by hand, right? So they knew it very, very well. Additionally, they were advisors in legal courts, and they wrote up legal documents for people. And if you've read much of the Old Testament of the law sections, you know that there are a lot of laws, and they're very strange sometimes and very interesting. It was the job of the scribes to figure out how to apply all those laws to all the intricacies and details of everyday life. So, for example, on the Sabbath, it says, do no work. What's work? How do you know if you're working on the Sabbath? How do you know if you're breaking the commandment? And so... I actually did a little research and looked up and saw a list. It was called a, um, a very bare bones list of 39 categories of work that included both writing and erasing. It included both weaving and unraveling, all work. Um, and I don't mean to make too much light of that, but the point is that it was difficult work. And so they actually had this profession. There was one in every town. These people, though, also had a responsibility, and they felt that it was their job their entitled position to decide what was God and what was not God, what was according to law and what was not according to law. And we're going to come back to this because this is exactly what Jesus runs into over and over and over again. So before we do that, I want to talk just for a moment about the labels we give. The titles we take are titles often we put on ourselves, but the labels we give are like titles. They're just labels we put on other things, usually to describe what they are, not ourselves. So, for example... I have a few labels up here that I found that we're supposed to do the job. Here's 100% beef, all meat, or all white meat chicken. There's your beef chicken. I have no idea, you know, how that happened or, or how that could have been printed. It just seems like it's all one thing. Somebody's looking at both of those. I don't understand. Okay, the next slide, Patrick. My, a little hard to read. This is stir-fried children and basil with rice. It's supposed to tell what's on the inside. I'm assuming it was supposed to be chicken, right? Okay, and we have the last one, my favorite. Tastes like grandma. Homemade jam, black raspberry. So labels are supposed to say they're supposed to give an accurate representation of what the thing is. But we have to be careful with labels. We have to be really, really careful with labels. Our society loves to label everything. We even label people. Jesus is someone who is breaking all the rules, all the, all the religious rules. He's going around breaking their Sabbath rules, especially. And yet he's driving out demons, and the scribes feel like, now it's our job to label this guy. So a, so a group of them come from Jerusalem. They're going to make a pronouncement. They're going to decide, and it doesn't take them very long. And they come up with a pretty ingenious trick, don't they? 
How does Jesus, at the one hand, break all the rules, and on the other hand, also have authority over these demonic beings? Well, we have an answer. We will label him as the prince of demons. That explains it. That explains how he's a rule breaker and how he can control these other, these other demons. Um, I want to give a little bit of background about this title because this is a really interesting one. Um, that word, uh, Beelzebul, is actually sort of an approximation of something you'd find if you read in 2 Kings. There's a god of the Philistines, Baal Zebul. And it's literally translated the Lord of the Heavenly House as a Philistine god. And it's, it's thought that if you, by the way, if you notice some, some scriptures have it Beelzebub and some have Beelzebub, like what's the deal with that? It's thought that Beelzebub was a, a little pun on the name of Beelzebub that changed it from Lord of the Heavenly House to Lord of the Flies. And so it was, it, it was a derogatory term that was used against this Philistine god, and they used it to represent kind of these, this demonic representation. And Jesus' answer is genius. He says, why? why would the strong man, why would the Lord of the house plunder his own house? Why would he do that? That's absolutely ridiculous. And then he talks about himself, and I love this picture of Jesus. He says, but someone, meaning himself, has tied up the strong man and is plundering his house. And there's something about Jesus as the divine plunderer that I love. Like, that's how he sees himself. I'm just going around and I'm, I'm plundering because I can. Um, and earlier in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has already had his temptation 40 days. And, and he's come out in the power of the Spirit. And now he's doing his ministry and he is displaying and putting that on power. But the, uh, the scribes get it wrong. And so now Jesus actually has one critique, and I want to talk about what I'm going to call the big one. We've all heard of it, the unforgivable sin, right? <clears throat> so, as we've said, Jesus, Jesus is aware of titles. In fact, if you look around in Scripture, you will see that Jesus references the Pharisees and the scribes who they sit in Moses' seat, and he says, listen to them, but he warns, he says, don't do what they do. He also has the interaction with, with paying taxes to Caesar. And he says, listen, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He recognizes these institutions, uh, these cultural labels that we use and titles that we take. But he also recognizes that they're not eternal. And so he doesn't give them a lot of credence. He interacts with people from all sorts of societies, cultures, other religions, other classes. And he doesn't seem to mind all of these other labels. He just sees them as, sees us as part of one community under God. And I wonder, I wonder why it is that Jesus gets such uh, a bee in his bonnet, as it were, about this title. What is this issue that he has, this unforgivable sin? Why is it so okay to have all these other categories and things, but this one to get wrong? I want to talk about what I think it is. Because Jesus is conflicting with religious, religious leaders all the time. Um, John especially. If you read the book of John, you'll see that Jesus has very, very harsh words. But you can see it throughout his life. And what he constantly is telling them is, you guys have it backwards. You have it mixed up. You're calling what is God not God. And, what you're, and you're calling what's not God, God. Let me explain. For Jesus, there were two kingdoms. There was the kingdom of God, and there was this other kingdom, the kingdom of God's opponent. And Satan, that word that Jesus actually uses, because he doesn't use that same word, Beelzebul, he, he changes it. Satan is represented in Scripture as the opponent of God, God's opposition the one who accuses. 
And so Jesus is constantly saying, listen, you're getting it backwards. He even says to the Pharisees at one point in John, your father is the devil. Can you imagine saying that to someone? What is he getting at? Why is he making such a big deal out of this? Well, if there are two kingdoms and they're diametrically opposed, there's a problem if you get them mixed up. And the scribes have gotten them mixed up. And, and Jesus' critique is, if you get this backwards, you're going to be in a dangerous spot. So I want to talk briefly about verses 28 and 29, and then pull a couple things out for us. In verse 28, Jesus says this, Everyone will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. That sounds like a fairly like blanket statement. Everyone will, for- will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. So set that aside for a second. And then he says, but whoever calls what is not God, God. In other words, and ever who gets this, whoever gets this mixed up, calling the Holy Spirit something that is exactly the opposite of the Holy Spirit, and he uses this language, does not have or will not obtain or possess forgiveness. So let me give an example. Uh, I could imagine someday when Tim just decided he wanted to give out free ice cream bars. So let's say Tim got up and said, I'm going to give out free ice cream bars to anybody who asks. And you hear about it, and you get confused, and you come to me asking for an ice cream bar. You will never get an ice cream bar from me because I don't have ice cream bars to give away, and I'm not giving away ice cream bars. Therefore, it reflects nothing on Tim and his desire to give away ice cream bars. It just means that you're never going to get one. So I actually don't think this, this should be called the unforgivable sin. In fact, most scriptures, uh, most Bible translations don't actually refer to this as being unforgivable. But you know which does? The NIV. The NIV actually gets it wrong in this case in terms of the scholarship community. It should not be traded as that person cannot, uh, will not be given forgiveness. The correct translation is they will never have it. They will never obtain it. So this should be called the sin that makes forgiveness unattainable. That's what it is. Because can you imagine trying to get forgiveness but not going to God, the one who is trying to give forgiveness? You'll just never get it. So all Jesus is saying is, listen, if you get this backwards and you're calling something God that is not God and you're trying to get what God has, you're not going to get it. You'll never get it forever and ever and ever. So instead, Jesus gives them some clear ways to distinguish. How does Jesus distinguish what is God and what is not God. Has anyone, I'll just take a pause for a second. Have you ever just tried to think deeply, how do we know? How do we know what is God and what is not God? I had a conversation with um, some college students recently this week, and we asked that question, how do you know when what you're thinking, what you're hearing, feeling, whatever, when, when it's God and what it's not God? How do you know? And it's, that's a tough question, I think. But Jesus does a couple things in and around these chapters that I want to pull out. And the first thing is this. That Jesus affirms, uh, here, let me actually read it from up screen. So uh, point number one, Patrick, under this should say something about, there we go. Jesus affirms that God desires good for us because he values us. Now that might sound like a very simple, obvious statement. But can we think just for a minute about the religious rules that get created to, to enable us not only to not value other people, but not even value ourselves? Think about the guilt and the shame that has been placed on people in the name of religion. Um, think about how easy it is to make compassion for yourself or compassion for another person and take a backseat 
some religious ideology or rule that we have in our minds that says, because of this rule now, I don't have to have compassion on that person. And Jesus is constantly trying to flip and and rewire that in us because he says, and echoing a, a verse in Isaiah, he says to the religious leaders, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea and he says, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. And yet how easy is it to do sacrifices for God, right? To sacrifice ourselves or even to sacrifice others in the name of or for the sake of God. And yet we know that Jesus over and over and over affirms God's goods for us. So, for example, he's walking with his disciples through the cornfields, and they don't have jobs. They're reliant on provision to take care of themselves. And it's on the Sabbath, and they're not supposed to work, but they need the food, and so they pluck corn, and they begin to eat it. And he gets accused, and he says, come on, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You've gotten it backwards. You've made this rule Take priority over having compassion for your own self. I get there. I can totally get there. Um, So maybe the the best question we would ask for ourselves is, would God actually want this for us? Does God want people to be walking around thinking they're garbage or dirt or unworthy of his love when he is the one who has said, you are worthy of love. That's why you are getting it. And I think Jesus' number one tool for helping people distinguish what's God and what's not God is if it's God, it loves and values God's good creation. And that's where we have to start. And then secondly, Jesus affirms what I'm going to call common sense and an intuitive understanding of good and evil. Anybody ever feel like um, uh, the Bible ties you in knots? Um, I feel like a lot of the last 10 years or so of my life and conversations with friends has been untying knots that our teachings have kind of tied us up in. It's almost like we've hamstrung ourselves and we can't live confidently and joyfully because we're constantly torn of, oh, is this right? Is it not? Maybe I'm not smart enough. I didn't go to Bible college, yada, yada, yada. So Jesus says this on the Sabbath. He, he asks the teachers a very simple question. What is lawful? To do good or to do evil? To do harm, to save life, or to kill? What is good? And they can't answer him. They won't answer him. And Jesus gets angry. Um, And I'm curious, (laughs) does anybody, when they get mad, do something in particular? Like some people clean, you get angry, and you just like start rage cleaning. Um, This is Jesus' anger healing. He gets angry, and he heals the guy. And I love that Jesus, it's like Jesus gets mad. What happens when Jesus gets mad? Oh, people get healed. You know, like that's not a bad thing. But this is Jesus' anger healing. It says he was angry at their stubbornness, stubborn holding on to these, these ideas that clearly don't reflect God's love for people, clearly don't value God's good creation, and yet they're stuck. And that's what dogmatism teaches us to do. It teaches us not to trust our God-given intuition and, con- and conscience, the very mechanism that God uses to allow, to allow us to hear his Holy Spirit. So Paul spends all this time in his letters telling people, you can hear God, you have the mind of Christ, you can discern what is good. And yet we get so focused on, well, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm this, I'm that, and we forget, wait, isn't all that brokenness forgiven? Isn't it covered by grace? Isn't it even embraced by God? And if it is, then I think what it says in Philippians 2, chapter 13 is true. 
where it says that God is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And I believe that we will never, as followers of Jesus, be able to live confidently and joyfully if we are constantly questioning the very thing, the goodness that God has put within us. We have got to stop believing in original badness and start accepting the fact that we came out of original goodness. Um, that's all I have for you today. I'd like to pray, though, before we go. Would you pray with me? <laughs> God, thank you for this example where we see Jesus interacting with a difficult and a confused culture. And God, though it's easy for us to maybe look at these scribes and these religious teachers as ridiculous, we also know that within our hearts, we have rules, we have boundaries, we have things that have been set in place that allow us to, ha- to be discompassionate, both to ourselves and to other people. We hear judgmental voices inside of our own heads judging our actions, and we hear those same voices judging others. We mistrust ourselves, and we see ourselves as, as wrong, as, as broken, and as incapable of maybe doing the right thing. And yet, Jesus, here you are. You're inviting us to recognize what you have already put within us, our God-given value, and the, and the voice of your Holy Spirit within us, guiding us and teaching us. Would you help us to trust that you are here with us? Help us to accept that you have placed your spirit within us. And that as we go forward, if we encounter these things that tie us up in knots, would you help us to ask the better questions? God, what is it you truly want for us? If you, want our, if you truly want what is good for us. And help us to want those things too. I believe, God, you have put passions and desires and hopes in the heart of every person in this room. And yet I also believe that many of us question those. God, would you free us from those questions? Would you allow us to live freely and boldly before you, knowing that your grace is more than enough to cover any mistake we could possibly make? And thank you, God, that you have invited us into this kind of living, into this kind of freedom. May it be a blessing to us and every person around us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for listening and being here with me this morning. If you'd like to join us upstairs for Bible conversation, we'll get started at 1130. Hey, we're done a little early, so if you have time and want to say, stay around and say hi, you're welcome to do that. I see Jimmy's here. You're welcome to pray with Jimmy. I'll be here as well if you'd like to talk. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. We'll see you next week.